This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Does putting your smartphone on a restaurant table during a date impact your relationships? How does where you place your TV in your home impact your family? Where does where you store your old love letters say about their significance, and why do adults feel so out of place in their childhood bedrooms? Well, as odd and silly as those things may sound, they actually make a big difference, at least according to my guest for this part of today's show, who's a sociologist, but she's not your regular sociologist. As she puts it, I'm not a sociologist who uses large national data sets to illustrate family life. I'm the sociologist who asks people to examine what's in their underwear drawers and living rooms to tell stories about their family life. And she's going to take us on a tour of the stages of life, from dating and marriages to parenting and aging, the kinds of things that are usually kept behind closed doors. We're going to look at online valentines and the growing popularity of man caves and look not only at what large demographic studies are saying about family dynamics, but also what our lives and the stuff in them, that's really what we're talking about, the stuff in them, say about how we relate to each other. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about how our stuff influences who we are when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark, and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Whoa. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Michelle Janning, who's the author of The Stuff of Family Life, How Our Homes Reflect Our Lives. Michelle, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be joining you. Thank you. Why don't we start with a little bit of a take on on your definition or the way that you use sociologist, because you're not your typical sociologist. (laughs) Um, I don't know what a typical sociologist is, but yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, I, I, would, I would define sociology as the study of human group behavior. Um, we're interested in everything from how our definitions of self and identity develop through our interactions with others, all the way up to macro-level systems like governments and large economic institutions and how those might both intersect with each other as well as influence us in our everyday lives. I think the, the way that I approach sociology might be a little bit different than others in that I, I like to combine it with a lot of other disciplinary lenses that include some of my background training in anthropology and the interest in symbols and rituals and material culture. And I dabble in, and I don't know if I do this well enough, but I, I like to say I include disciplines like uh, consumer studies, leisure studies, some psychology, perhaps even some business studies um, yeah. and communications. Well, it all adds up to make us who we are, I guess. I guess that's right, yeah. Yeah. 
So how did you get interested in digging through people's sock drawers and, and <laughs> figuring out you know, what that all means? Yeah, well, I mean, the, to, to clarify, I'm not the person who actually goes and digs through your sock drawers. I like to ask people questions about what's in their sock drawers. And if they care to disclose those things or perhaps show me, uh, then I would be happy to do that. So just to <laughs> kind of clear the air that I'm, I'm well, not no, that. You're, uh, you're, yeah. you're not um, breaking into people's houses. Not breaking into yeah, people's okay. homes, no. I'm, I'm interested in people's stuff. I think what objects we have are not only symbolic of our social world, but they also affect us in ways that we don't even notice sometimes. They're quite powerful. So it might be that I, I like to talk to people about their love letters, for example, um, but, but maybe more than the content itself, which shows some interesting things about the relationship, I like to see where people put them and how often they look at them and what that might say about how they symbolize or make meaning of the relationships that they hold near and dear or maybe the relationships that they find uh, troubling. So it's kind of a under understudied, invisible part of our social world that actually impacts in ways impacts us in ways that we may not uh, necessarily even be aware of. Well, let's talk about things like maybe even starting outside the house with with the welcome mat. Does yeah. that make a difference? I mean, does anybody, I, I always look at those things and think, oh, well, there's nothing really special here. And you know, every once in a while you get one that says wipe your paws or something like that, that I guess is supposed to be kind of clever. D does does it make a difference? I think the, uh, the existence of a welcome mat would tell us a great story about how people say, yes, you are welcome to come into our home. But I think people take it for granted that it may not necessarily be genuine or it may not necessarily be reflective of the level of warmth that people might feel when they come in. So it, in my estimation, if I was to, say, conduct interviews and ask people about their welcome mats, I wouldn't just see whether they had one, although I think that's interesting. Um, I would see why, if they do, and why they may not if they don't. Um, sometimes this can uncover things about how public and private uh, or how the border between public and private might be very firm for some families, it might be very uh, fluid for others. And as, as weird as it may sound, I actually think asking people how much the welcome mat costs can be an important factor, too, because really? it can get very elaborate very quickly and also reveal how people's maybe class status might influence the visual displays they have to say, here, come into my house, or, or not. Does it matter whether there's a word on it? It says welcome, <laughs> or whether it's it could be some replica of a stone, or you know, there's all different kinds of patterns you can get. Sure. D does that make a difference in how people how welcome people feel? I think that if there's a word on it, it would be consistent with norms that we have. Um, and so, if so, for example, on our front <laughs> door, I have a sign that says "Come in, we are awesome." <laughs> Huh. which I think is funny <laughs> and, and perhaps a bit of a play on the come in, you are welcome. And and the message I would like to convey to people is, of course, you're welcome here, but be careful because we're kind of smart Alex sometimes, or we like to have a good sense of humor here. And so it's a little bit of a marker of how I wish to portray myself to people who come to our house. Um, the whole notion of words on welcome mats or words you know, even on our walls, some of the decor we see that have inspirational quotes. I think that's something that's um, in style right now. And so the genuineness with which we might welcome somebody might be best embedded in um, maybe aesthetic norms about what's normal and what's common. And so if it's normal to have the word welcome on a map, people get maps with welcome on them. 
um, and they maybe get them without even thinking about it. Um, it's become so common. Yeah, I mean, for, I think a lot of people just get it because you don't want to have dirt trekked into your house. <laughs> right. Is that... Well, or people don't people get them without the words on them because they think it's too cliche. They want to have their welcome mats be something that indicates more uniqueness about them or something that maybe isn't as common, and so they might yeah. get something. Uh, or, like you mentioned, if they want to have it match the aesthetics of their home and they're picky about that, then they might choose something without a word on it if they feel that that connotes some kind of taste um, right. that might be judged by Well, them. so that, that's the, the intention part of it. How is it perceived, though? Do you do you ask about that part of it? Do you feel that I mean, do you are you finding that people feel more welcome in a in a home where they've been greeted with welcome, or whether they've been greeted with a, a you know a wood pattern? You know, I haven't actually researched this particular object in homes. I think one of the things that I can say is it's more it's more along the lines of what motivates people to to manage their family lives and how that's perceived by others is maybe the focus of, of a second set of questions that I have yet to uncover. But, um, but I think in any case, the, the notion that I would want to, I guess, pay attention to when I ask people about, you know, say the toys they decide to leave out or, um, or whether they um, have a certain kind of bed or whether they bring their stuffed animals with them to school if they go off to college or something. What I'm really interested in is not just how they're intending to do things, but um, do they want to portray a sense of self that they think others will see them a certain way? So I'm more interested in how we see ourselves in light of how we think others might see us, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, and then to do a kind of audience reception of do you feel welcome would be an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's let's go talk a little bit about stuffed animals. I mean, that's kind okay. of a, a cliche, I guess, in some ways, is people keep stuffed animals from their past or they sometimes they keep them closer to where they are sometimes they put them up on higher and higher shelves what does that say about somebody the way the way that they display their stuffed animals if they display them at all yeah this would be an interesting question to think about at different life stages so for example um if you're an 18 year old and you're off to go find an apartment with friends or go off to college and you have to make a decision about whether you'd like to bring a stuffed animal, you might be thinking to yourself, how much of my childhood identity do I want to retain in the eyes of others when I go off to this new community? And so for some people, it might mean, you know, I'm going to take it with me because I'm just not ready enough to let that stage of my life be absent, but I'm going to put it in a drawer, you know, maybe in my, my desk drawer or something like that, or hide it under a pillow so that um, it, it's something I can choose to reveal to people, um, but only once I know that they're okay with me revealing that part of myself. So there might be a kind of transition to adulthood um, project that goes yeah. on with people going to college. For, for those of us later in life, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, and I have my stuffed animals from childhood, and there are two or three that I keep close, um, including one that was my father's when he was a child, and he's, he's no longer with us. Um, and I keep them close because I like to see them as visible reminders of things that are important to me. The ones that maybe I didn't necessarily have as much emotional attachment to are stored in a cupboard downstairs. And there's actually some kind of fun consumer studies research on this, that if we if we have objects that we want to maybe distance ourselves from, that that's not quite who I am anymore, but I can't quite get rid of it, we put them in places that are kind of cooling them off, right? Like a coffee table that we want to get rid of or that we want to put on a yard sale, but, you know, we just can't get rid of it yet, so I'm going to put it in the garage or 
in the basement. And I think we can do the same thing with markers of our past identities. Um, and sometimes they're also gifts from people that we want to think about. So it might not just be about us. Sure. It might yeah. be about the other people who've given them. Talking with Michelle Janning, who is the author of The Stuff of Family Life, How Our Homes Reflect Our Lives. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Michelle. I want to get into a little bit about uh, division of labor issues and uh, nuclear families and non-nuclear families. I'm Armin Brunt. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brat talking with Michelle Janning, who is the author of The Stuff of Family Life, How Our Homes Reflect Our Lives. I want to ask you a little bit about division of labor issues and is how that's reflected in the way that people have their houses set up. I mean, you mentioned in the, in the title of the chapter that you've got on that, you're talking about uh, toolboxes and spices. But is it always noticeable or always clear from just walking into somebody's house and looking at their kitchen or something who does what whether it's a man i I don't think it's always clear i think it's important to ask people how they use things in order to understand what role they may play in a family or in a household so it's a little bit incomplete to just look at oh there's a screwdriver on the table and just assume that it belongs to one of the people in the household um, so asking people how they use things becomes really important. That's what we did. Uh, part of the chapter talks about power tools, and, and I did an interview study with women who watch decorating television shows, you know, programs that are on HGTV and the DIY network and other places where we wondered, you know, I wonder if people who are doing all these home remodeling shows um, or who are watching them are getting ideas. You know, the audience is primarily women, especially for the redecorating shows, not necessarily the renovation shows and if they are getting ideas are they using tools that they may otherwise have not used so women um, disproportionately unlikely to use things like table saws um, power drills things like that and uh, in fact we found that the women that we interviewed did in fact use those things more often Um, but the interesting part of what we uncovered by asking them how do you use them and why and what does this mean to you was that it was in order to build and remodel and redecorate things uh, that they felt they should be charged with as the managers of the household. So you have a kind of messy version of how gender operates there, which I think is true in most people's lives. It's never just all or nothing or he does everything, she does everything. Um, There's some complexity to it that we uncovered with some of our interviews, and that's in that chapter. But just the the presence of a table saw doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean anything about gender. I mean, if you didn't know who was living there or you didn't know who was watching what shows or who was actually right. doing what, I mean, you really couldn't necessarily right. tell. I think you could you could make assumptions, and the assumptions would be based in perceptions about gender roles in our society, and depending on how 
much you pay attention to that, you might be better at guessing than others. And, you know, even if you were to go into a garage, and like our garage, we've got a table saw and, and a band saw and some other things, and people might walk in there, and this has happened, and have said uh, to me, you know, your husband's power saw or table saw X, Y, and Z. Well, he doesn't use them. I do. And so in that moment, um, there's a sort of reversal of expectations, but the expectations were there in the first place, and those are pretty powerful. So then people who kind of go against the maybe normative expectations of what men and women do need to spend energy explaining that to people. Um, and that's what's interesting to me and why I think it's really important not just to look at the table saw, but to ask people who uses it, why, how do you feel about that, what do people think about that. You know, sometimes I, I go to people's houses and, and look at their bookshelves, and I have to confess that they're you know, every once in a while this will be true of my bookshelf, is there'll be something on there that I have not read and probably won't. (laughs) But there's a tiny little bit of me that says I want people to think that I've read that. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, so how I'm kind of wondering, like, how, first of all, I I know that that's common, but how much of, generally speaking, of of what people have in their house is for them and how much of it is, is to convey a certain impression to people that may or may not be true? You know, sociologists will always include a discussion of status representation in how we understand why people do what they do. I might really love the color red um, personally and and decorate my house that way, Um, but I might choose things in a certain way that connote a certain taste or aesthetic that I think, oh gosh, people who see that will approve or will ask me about it or will see me in a certain favorable light. Um, And I think that's true if you look at, for example, research on um, TV armoires, you know, and the the notion of should we expose our television in a kind of communal living space that we know people will see if they come through our front door. And if your answer is, no, I want to hide that, you know, for those of us in academia, watching a lot of TV may come across as, why are you doing that? You should be be reading books. We might get an armoire to cover up our TV. and for other people, that might not occur to them that that matters. So the context in which we're operating has to include a community of maybe potential audience members that we think might see us a certain way. Um, and that could be true whether we're conscious of it or not, but I like to ask people about the, I guess, the conscious part. <laughs> How do you suggest that parents talk to their kids about this kind of thing? You know, think about what people are going to see when they come in the house or I mean or are these things that people pick up from general culture I mean that question delves into several different areas that matter to parents one of which is consumption and overconsumption and materialism I think I think there are a lot of parents who take very great care to talk to their kids about what uh, what it means to have too much stuff I mean if we didn't have that there wouldn't be all of the online and other resources about how to downsize, how not to, to buy too much stuff, whether you're from a, taking it from a um, kind of a cultural value perspective or an environmental perspective. So I think a lot of parents are conscious of that at, at portraying um, not just to themselves for their own values, but to others that they don't overconsume is is on some people's minds. And of course, that's more common among people who have the, the means to to withhold things, right? And so the idea of withholding material goods from presentation to others as a way of saying we're we're good citizens and we're we're taking care of the environment so that's on parents minds maybe maybe a less um, political but still just as important piece has um, come across in my chapter on divorce 
where I talk about kids whose parents have split up have time that they spend in two different houses. And what, what's interesting about that is that for the young people that we interviewed, it didn't matter how much space they had, right? So parents think, oh, if I'm going to split up from my partner, I better make sure that we have a big enough bedroom for our daughter or our son. The kids didn't mind how big the space was. They just wanted to feel like they had control uh, over a space or that there was a space that was kind of their own. So my advice to parents when they've asked me, say, about that topic is to say, you know, it's really good to have an explicit conversation about stuff with your kids because they're going to be bringing things back and forth. That matters. That takes energy. Um, the, the notion of buying two toothbrushes instead of bringing one back and forth is actually a good conversation to have. And whether kids feel like they have a space of their own or control over their things becomes um, a really key part of how those kinds of space arrangements and custody arrangements uh, end up taking place. My advice is make it explicit. Um, acknowledge that these things matter, uh, or that people think about them when they're spending time in two homes. And that really would help to, to set up the home, I guess, as well. I mean, do, do you think that, sure. that displaying a child's artwork, for example, makes them feel more welcome or more a part of the home? I think it, I, I, I would say probably, but I would want to ask the child. Um, to some people, it doesn't matter. So, and, and that would be where, you know, more individual psychologies would matter. Some people are very interested in sort of a public presentation of themselves, um, if you have a child who's more reserved or who feels like their work is, is important to share but within the family, maybe that artwork isn't tacked to the refrigerator or in front of a place that, you know, people come into the home that's a little bit less private, like a living room, and maybe instead it's in a bedroom. So even within the home there might be kind of delineations of public and private that kids might feel like um, it matters where it is. But I would ask the kids. I would ask. And, and this is true what, no matter the family structure, you know, the display of children's possessions becomes an interesting thing uh, for the parents and how the parents represent themselves. Maybe it would be useful to talk to kids about how they'd like to represent themselves as well. No, that, that's a very good thing. I, mean, I just got a little kind of a, a nasty comment from one of my daughters who said, you, you know, you put up a picture on, on your blog of me without asking my permission. And it was a completely innocuous kind of a thing. I mean, it was not nothing to be embarrassed about. But I, you know, I realized that, that she's absolutely right. You have a tendency to think that, well, everything it's on my phone, therefore it's public. Right. Uh, right. But yeah. No, and I, th I think social media and the, the, the objects, objects of technology we use are a really fascinating place for us to wrestle with these questions. And my son's the same way. He's very private. In fact, he'd probably be annoyed I just said that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. so it's one of those where the representation of childhood and our children um, in spaces in our home that are behind a door feel different, and, and yet we have these wrestlings that, you know, should I put a picture up on Facebook? And I think there's a lot of, we're still trying to figure out the norms for that. And right. so not only the 13-year-olds, but, you know, the parents are trying to figure out the norms of what is public and what is private. Yeah. One, of, one of the main foundations of my book is that we're still wrestling with this public-private boundary. We think of homes as these private havens, and, of course, that's an outdated term. It's never been true. Um, and now that we have technology making the lines between our home life and the rest of our lives um, so blurry and so connected and so networked, um, it becomes difficult to draw those boundaries, if even if we, um, or if we choose that we'd like to do that. 
Michelle Jennings, the author of The Stuff of Family Life, How Our Homes Reflect Our Lives. Michelle, great to have you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. And it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, this one dealing with treating boys and girls differently. Do we really need to? Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I have two-year-old twins, a girl and a boy, and we both love spending time with them. But I've noticed that he and I have very different styles in several ways. We do different activities with the kids. And I've also noticed that I do a better job of treating the kids the same while he treats our son very differently than our daughter. What's the best way to play with a toddler? And isn't it better to play with the two kids in exactly the same way? The short answers to your questions are A, there's no such thing as a best way or a right way to play with children, and B, it's impossible to treat two children in identical ways, whether they're the same sex or not. To start with, moms and dads typically have very different play styles, with dads leaning toward louder physical activities, moms towards quieter, less physical ones. Neither approach is better than the other. For their first few years of life, kids learn almost everything about the world through play. And they're learning different but equally valuable lessons from each of you. So the best approach is for your kids to have both. Moms and dads differ in other ways as well. For example, dads generally encourage independence, allowing their children to take more risks and learn from the consequences. Moms tend to be more cautious and protective and encourage their children to take fewer risks perhaps in an effort to spare them the pain that comes with failure. Of course, not all moms and dads fall into these patterns, but most do. Again, the best approach is both. Here's how this might play out. Imagine that you're in a park and your kids are climbing a jungle gym. You may find yourself standing closer to the bottom, ready to catch a falling child, warning them to be careful and suggesting that they've gone high enough. Your husband will most likely be standing a bit further away, encouraging the kids to climb higher. Or if you're walking with your kids and one of them falls, your husband will probably wait a few seconds longer than you do before helping. As you notice, dads and moms often don't treat their sons and daughters the same way, with moms being more egalitarian and dads more traditional. Dads tend to be more physical with and encourage independence in boys than girls, perhaps as a way to toughen boys up. Dads respond more quickly to fussy or crying girls than to boys and will pick up a daughter who's fallen sooner than a son. Interestingly, when it comes to gender roles, moms and dads are equally likely to support stereotypes. They're perfectly fine about dressing a girl in pink or blue, wanting to give her the option to be anything she wants to be. But the same parents would balk at putting their son in pink. Similarly, while they might encourage a girl to play with trucks and other boy toys, they're less likely to encourage a boy to play with dolls, unless they're superheroes or soldiers. While it might seem like a nice idea to treat your son and daughter the same way, that's never going to happen. The best you can do is give them both the same options and support the choices they make. 
A few years ago, I interviewed a mother of boy-girl twins who, like you, tried very hard to create a gender-neutral environment at home. So she was very surprised that her daughter often wrapped up toy trucks, gave them bottles, and rocked them to sleep. And she was equally surprised that her son tore the heads off the Barbie dolls and used the legs as guns. If you've got a question for us or a comment or a suggestion or anything else, you can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with a whole new Positive Parenting show for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com, and want to thank you very much for staying with us for the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Is it okay for my child to eat dirt? That's a question that a lot of pediatricians get these days. They also get a lot of other questions like, my two-year-old gets constant ear infections. Should I give her antibiotics or probiotics? Or things like, I've heard that my son's asthma was caused by a lack of microbial exposure. If this is true, what can I do about it now? Well, if you're the kind of person who gets online, go ahead, Google these questions and others like them, and you will be overwhelmed with answers. The Internet is just filled with speculation and misinformation about the risks and benefits of what most parents think of as simply germs but which scientists are now calling the microbiome, which is the combined activity of all of the tiny organisms that live inside our bodies and the surrounding environment that have an enormous impact on our health and well-being. Over the years on Positive Parenting, we've talked a little bit about the microbiome, but things are changing quite a bit, and we're going to be talking with one of the top scientists who is leading the investigation into the microbiome, an investigation that is producing fascinating discoveries and bringing answers to parents who want to do the best for their young children. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the advantages of germs and why dirt is good for a developing immune system when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. <laughs> oh, thank you. For more information, visit BoosterSeat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Jack Gilbert, who's the co-author with Rob Knight of Dirt is Good, the Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. Jack, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's talk a little bit about overall the emerging science of the microbiome. It's something I think probably two, three years ago nobody ever heard the, the phrase, or you probably did, but most people outside of the scientific community hadn't. And... How is this something that has really blossomed, so to speak? Right. I mean, if you think about the history of medicine, this has actually been around for many years. In fact, you know, uh, go back as far as Pasteur and his discovery of uh, germs as causing disease. Well, he also made the preposition that microbes might actually be useful for health. And actually having the right kinds of bacteria inside you may be essential for your health. And I mean, Fast forward about 20 or 30 years to the early part of the 20th century, so around 1910, and we have Eli Metchinkoff saying that fermented milk products were extremely valuable for health. So we, we, we for years, have understood that microbes in our body, the, the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses, could be important in well-being. And it's only really, I'd say, in the last 10, 15 years that the medical community has started to re-embrace that idea. So for almost 100 years, the idea of a, um, of a microbiome being beneficial, of the bacteria actually helping in health, was kind of quashed to a certain extent. We, we didn't really want to know it or understand it, so we ignored it. And now we are starting to see that they can play a very vital role in helping to maintain wellness. Well, so how, how did this happen that antibiotics became to be such a big thing? Because those are essentially wiping out all of the bacteria, whether it's good or bad. Did they kind of willfully disregard Pasteur and, and the rest of the, the folks you just mentioned? No, in fact, they willfully embraced them. <laughs> so the idea that well, antibiotics could be useful is extremely old, right? We've, we've been using uh, compounds to kill off organisms that are dangerous to our health for many years. In fact, you know, even as early as the First World War, the, the Russians were using um, a thing called phage therapy, whereby we get viruses that kill bacteria, but very specific viruses which kill very specific pathogens, and we pump the body full of those, and they kill off the bad guys, right? Well, the West, America and Europe, developed um, these antibiotics in around the 1940s and they were extremely valuable in killing off an infection once it took hold of your body. So we need those, right? They, be, they have saved countless hundreds of millions of lives. Oh, yeah. And kept yeah. you know, people alive that uh, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have otherwise made it. Um, it's just, unfortunately, we didn't realize that maybe the overuse of antibiotics or the uh, uncontrolled use of these 
um, antibiotic, and even antimicrobial compounds, such as cleaning products in your home, could somehow disrupt your um, experience of the microbiome. And this, we believe, has affected how we, uh, how we acquire chronic diseases, such right. as immune-activated asthma or allergies. Well, let's talk a little bit about that part of it, because I, I come to this, my, I've got a very good friend who's a, a functional medicine doctor, and she talks a lot about this with me, and, and it is mm-hmm. saying that it's, it's related to pretty much everything, that, that whether it's, it's bizarre neurological problems or allergies or depression or anxiety, or it just seems to show up everywhere. Can you talk a little bit about the, the many ways that this exists or that, that it plays out? Absolutely. So if you think about it, the microbiome, the many bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in your gut, live on your skin, in your mouth, and your urogenital tract all over you, right? They are an integral part of your body. Um, your body cannot get rid of them. In fact, your body has learned over evolutionary time to embrace them. And your body actually constructed a special edifice to control them called the immune system, right? That's what the immune system's job is. We think that the immune system, we used to think that the immune system's job was to kill off the bad guys. Now we know it's more like a, like a national park warden, right? Or a, a gardener killing off the bad guys. Sure, getting rid of the weeds, making sure there are no invasive plants or species, but also sustaining and enabling the other plants, the other animals to grow and become productive. Your immune system is doing that in your body. It's killing off the pathogens, sure recognizes them, it eradicates them. But it's also there to actually promote the growth of beneficial organisms. So if you think about it, when your immune system isn't seeing some of the beneficial organisms it expects to see, it can become hyper-responsive. It can overreact to the smallest provocation and cause um, an allergy or an allergic attack or, um, or asthma. But this is the amazing thing. When the microbiome is disrupted generally, you can actually get even more sophisticated alterations to your ecosystem. And that can lead to neurological disorders that you mentioned, like depression, anxiety, even the neurodevelopmental problems like autism and ADHD and school readiness. And even when we get older, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's have all been linked to disruptions or changes in the microbial community. The microbiome is not the be-all and end-all of those conditions, but it is playing a substantive role in how your body processes energy, um, signals, uh, chemicals, and that affects so many different parts of your health. Everything from obesity and diabetes all the way through to the neurological disorders and then these autoimmune and chronic inflammatory disorders such as asthma and allergies. Um, we, are, we, we have been engaged in trying to categorize which aspects the microbiome plays a role in um, and we've been shocked in the fact that it, it plays a role in virtually every disease. And this is because everything is connected. The whole body is a functioning ecosystem, and when one thing is disrupted, everything gets disrupted. Is it safe to say that everyone's microbiome is different, or do people who live in the same geological area or the same community or same family members, I mean, how, how is it that, it's, that it develops? Well, everybody has their own unique microbiota because it's, you know, some of it's passed down from your mother, right? When you're born and you're smothered in your mother's vaginal juices or you're kissing, getting kisses from your mother or, or from your father or you're holding tight onto the skin, 
um, or even through breast milk, you get a healthy dose of your parental microbiome. But it's still technically impossible for that child to get exactly the same bacteria as the mother has in exactly the same proportions that maintain exactly the same community composition. It just doesn't happen, right? And the microbes that uh, you experience in the world around you, from the animals you interact with, all the way through to the soil you may play in, um, they play a role in shaping your immune system and the kind of microbes that could colonize you. So you get this unique microbial profile. Yes, you are more similar in microbial composition to your family uh, than you are to some stranger. And yes, we often see that people that live in the same area are exposed to the same plants, animals, and soil um, can have a similar microbiota. But we can still identify identical twins based on their microbial composition because it's mathematically impossible that you would acquire exactly the same types of organisms and maintain them in those same proportions. Wait, you said you still you can't identify identical twins, or you can? No, we can. We can. We can see that an identical twin pair has a unique microbiome each, right? Uh, you know, uh, little Johnny and little Max uh, will have a unique microbiome despite the fact their genome is 100% identical. And so does everything that happens to you stay there in some ways? I mean, you, you know, you're talking about the, as you go through the birth canal, you're going to get hit with some some bacteria as you have breast milk and all the various things. I mean, if you move to another part of the country, does that fade? Do, do bacteria only only survive if they're being fed with particular kinds of foods? Or how, you know, do you know what I mean? Is it like an archaeological yeah, dig pretty. that everything is there, or does it change completely over time? It, it, it does change. Um, there's alterations in the composition of your microbiota <clears throat> based on your diet, on where you live, on who you interact with, right? That does change. Of course it does. Um, but what's interesting in, in, in ecology, we have something called the founder effect, i.e. the first organism that gets there, it sets up shop, and it changes the succession of that ecosystem. It changes who can come in, who can uh, take up shop, uh, how the immune system attacks certain organisms. So that founder effect means that the microbes you get from your mother early in life can actually alter the trajectory of organisms which will um, colonize and, and become productive inside you, right? So we often see that, yes, you have changes in your microbiota. Yes, if you suddenly start eating Chinese food versus, you know, Indian food, you're going to have a very different type of microbiome um, blooming up. But the composition of the microbiota is nearly identical in terms of the community that's actually present inside your body. So what we do is we try and identify those communities of organisms, and we think that over time they're pretty stable. Although maybe 5 or 10% could actually alter and change as you go through life. Uh, some 80 to 90% is actually going to be very stable and maintain its composition throughout your life. Talking with Jack Gilbert, who's the co-author with Rob Knight of Dirt is Good, the advantage of germs for your child's developing immune system. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Jack. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other, and that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. 
please tell everybody hello for me, and that I'll be home soon. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people, people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm talking to Jack Gilbert, who's the author of Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what it is that we can do as parents and as, as adults who maybe people don't even have kids. I think all of us should be taking better care of our, our gut. Um, what do we do? How do we how do we do that? I mean, you hear so much about probiotics and prebiotics and fermented this and kefir and uh, you know it's it's so confusing. And and I was thinking about probiotics, and then I went into a health food store and also went into the the aisle at Costco, and it's just enough to make you want to scream and run the other direction. There's a hundred different kinds, and each one of them have a trillion of this and two trillion of that, and it's it's overwhelming. Well, it, how do you begin? Well, you, it's, it's very difficult. There, are, there is no hard and fast rule. Um, you know, probiotics are an interesting component. Uh, but let, let, me, let, me, let me back up a little bit and, and sure. go with what we think you can do, right, in order to maintain microbial health. I mean, the first things are starting with pregnancy, just eating a healthy, balanced diet, right? And, you know, not, not being too worried about, um, you know, being exposed to soil or dirt or animals. You know, you have to be careful of certain... Uh, uh, parasites or toxoplasmosis coming from one of your cats maybe but if your animals have been vaccinated and if they are healthy generally then having a, that kind of exposure in pregnancy can be beneficial but eating a healthy diet is useful now let me fast forward to birth um, having a vaginal delivery um, uh, has some presumed benefits over having a c-section for example but if you have to have a C-section, then we know that there are mechanisms to introduce your baby to some of those vaginal bacteria it's, it's expecting to see evolutionarily. You know, babies and their immune system expect to see those vaginal bacteria early in life. So there are ways to reintroduce those bacteria into the child's experience. Then as the child develops, breastfeeding is very beneficial. Again, the baby's microbes are expecting to see breast milk. It has all the right constituents in order to feed the baby's microbiota. And then as we even move further on, a healthy, balanced diet. Not an easy thing to do, right? But a healthy, balanced diet is extremely beneficial for maintaining baby's health. And that includes a rich diet of fiber, um, uh, many different types of colorful vegetables. You know, and it sounds strange, but eating green vegetables and then trying to improve your diet of colorful vegetables mm -hmm. and fruits can be extremely helpful. Right? And a lot of it you knew about. Your mother told you the right, right kinds of things to eat. You've know, just got to listen to those, those old tales. But they're true. Um, sure. Now, when we get forward to sometimes you may have a disease or you've uh, taken an antibiotic and you are disturbed in your microbiota, then we need to think about it differently. What can we do to add bacteria back in or maybe to augment the immune system to repair this damaged environment? And that's where probiotics and sometimes prebiotics can come in and be extremely valuable. Um, the problem is 
the vast majority of probiotics you see in the shelf in Costco, as you said, um, uh, or any other store, um, are, are overwhelming and bewildering. And, and many of them have exactly the same organisms in them, but they have different colors, different packages, different numbers. And uh, we do not know um, of, uh, of any real hard and fast guidelines in the medical field, in the, in the microbiome field, or in the nutritional field about which ones are beneficial or most beneficial for maintaining health. We do know, for example, that the use of lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, a common one you can find in your, in your healthcare store, um, is valuable in treating diarrhea. So if your child has diarrhea, get them some lactobacillus rhamnosus GG and feed it to them on a, on a regular basis as prescribed on the back of the bottle, and it will help to reduce the time that they are suffering from diarrhea. We also know this works for some allergies. We also know this works for some forms of neurological disorders, such as some forms of depression. There are certain types of probiotics which can be used to treat a disease. But if you're healthy and you have a healthy, balanced diet and you're living in a healthy environment, then there really is no need to take a probiotic. It doesn't actually seem to right. help promote wellness in the child. There are exceptions to that rule, though. Well, and there's also the title of the book, Dirt Being Good, and the uh, the proliferation of antibacterial soaps and things like that. I mean, there are other other things that you can do to stimulate or avoid hindering the development of a, of a good immune system, right? Right, and this is where it gets really exciting, okay? So I talked about food and probiotics and diet. Well, that's one thing. But then there are environmental stimulants which can play a role. Um, having a dog lick your child's face might seem a little bit gross, <laughs> but your body's the body of your child has been expecting to see those animal bacteria around for years. We did a study in the Amish and the Husserites. In the Amish, um, a sect who has this huge technology, right? They, they don't like iPads or phones or, or, um, or radios or TV. Um, they live in a world where the children are constantly exposed to a farming environment like their ancestors were for hundreds and thousands of generations, okay? And those children um, have very low rates of asthma and atopy, um, allergic disease, okay? The Hutterites have actually severed their children's relationship with animals. Um, the kids are not allowed on the farm, and so they see much highly, much more elevated levels of asthma and atopy. And this is, this is fascinating to us, right? It suggests that the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, the, the microbiota of the animals on the farm is actually beneficial to train a child's immune system in preventing disease. And we see the same thing with dogs. Uh, children that grow up with a dog in their home under the age of 13, under the age of 12 months, sorry, have a 13% reduction in the likelihood of developing asthma. And Playing outside in the dirt, or even when you drop your baby's, uh, you know, um, pacifier on the ground, just licking it off and sticking it back in baby's mouth is actually more beneficial for their health than uh, than uh, you know putting in a sterile one back into their mouth. Um, that exposure is valuable in training their immune system, and preventing the development of these chronic immune disorders that are plaguing our society. You know, I want to go back a little bit to antibiotics because as you were talking about the even things starting with, with birth and the vaginal juices and, and all of the bacteria there, if you take an antibiotic and er everything is wiped out, is everything really wiped out? Do you lose the benefit of the things that you got during birth or before you took the antibiotic? Or does some stuff no, stay there somehow? It, it's some, yeah, exactly. Some stuff stays there. I mean, you, you knock back the abundance, right? It's like 
It's like I went in and I culled as many of the organisms as I could. And the, the reason you do that is because you want to try and cull the organism, hit it off, the one that got into your bloodstream or the one that got into your muscle tissue or, you know, is infecting a wound. Um, that, that organism needs to be knocked out, right? And once you knock it down and get its abundance low enough, the immune system can take over again and kill it off. The, as you say, the unfortunate side effect is it kills off many of the other organisms as well, but it never fully wipes them out. And the immune system, once, once their abundance has dropped low enough, you stop taking the antibiotic, uh, your immune system is killed off the bad guy, your immune system also takes over and starts to control the redevelopment of the good guys, right? right. It, 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 it falls back into its gardener role or its, uh, its uh, national park warden role and starts to re-promote the growth of a healthy ecosystem. Um, and sometimes that goes wrong, but the majority of the time it goes right. When it goes wrong, we can think about those probiotics. We can think about prebiotics and changing your diet, maybe um, you know, walking outside or exposing yourself to the outside world more could help to actually improve the development of that, of yeah. that uh, recovery. Okay? Yeah, but is, on the whole, your body gets better. Is there a way that parents can take a look at their child and say, you know, you, you've got ADD or you've got celiac disease or you have issues with something or, you know, what, whatever it is, whether it's depression or any of the, the things that we've talked about, is there a way to get that evaluated to see whether the problem is being caused by a microbiome issue? Um, unfortunately, right now, the, the science is at a very early stage. There are companies out there. One is called Ubiome, um, and Ubiome will offer to, you know, for $89, you can have your microbiome sequence. Um, uh, they are exploring ways to, um, to find out how to evaluate that, but they're not quite there yet, right? Uh, they may be able to do it for a small number of diseases, but for the vast majority of the conditions we've talked about, especially the ones that say children, uh, we cannot yet use this information to diagnose a child in a condition or determine whether the microbiome is playing a substantive role. Uh, we are at the very early stages of research and development. And as we move forward with this, you will see many of these facets getting into the clinic, but they're not there yet. Talking with Jack Gilbert, who's the co-author with Rob Knight and uh, Sandra Blakely was involved as well of a book called Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. Jack, thanks for joining us. It's great. The book is filled with all sorts of stuff, and besides uh, information about various conditions, there's information about myths and things, questions that you may have. Uh, Jack, again, thanks very much. My pleasure. Lovely to speak with you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.